you come in here, it's Christmas, and you sing a song about priests being slaughtered. Doesn't appear very Christmassy. Just shows you don't know about Christmas because when Jesus was born, 2,000 baby boys were slaughtered in the attempt to stop him. Christmas is a wonderful time, but it's also a time that reminds us of um, the hardness of human hearts and the sinfulness. We're going to um, read in Romans chapter 3. Before we do that, can I just mention a couple of other things? Uh, the record is available at the back there. Uh, the Christmas edition is there. Also, speaking of Christmas, if you go on to YouTube and, or um, some other way of finding, Dave Henderson has produced a couple of videos, not just him, but uh, a lot of other people in the congregation, and they're both marvelous, including Dave's uh, own Christmas song and a version of Silent Night. Highly recommended. And uh, this evening, uh, we've had a change. Sinclair has to go to the United States. Some of you will know um, a very well-known teacher and minister and theologian, very influential person, R.C. Sproul. He went to be with the Lord this past week, and Sinclair will be taking his funeral. So uh, this evening, uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to continue uh, a, a mini-series I've been doing uh, over the past few months when I've been able called um, I Can't Believe In, and since it's Christmas, we're going to do I Can't Believe in the Virgin Birth. I'm going to look at why that's important, what the Bible says about it, and why it's a key part of the good news. So if you ever get someone saying that to you, and it's an objection I still hear a lot from non-Christians, then feel free to invite them along. They're very, very welcome. Before I read this passage, I do want to ask, in terms of Christmas, the phrase that struck me over the past few weeks is the, what the shepherds were told, that this is good news of great joy for all the people. Well, how's that? How is this good news of great joy for my Muslim neighbors, and how is it good news of great joy for your unbelieving family? How is it good news of great joy for the people looking hassled as they walk down the streets to get their last presence. I think one of the problems we've got is we try to have the joy without the reason for the joy. And sometimes the church doesn't help. So much of, uh, I've been, there's no need to name the denomination, but I've been uh, looking at their Christmas message every day since December the 1st. And you know, it's, it's just unbaptized paganism, to be honest. There's nothing there, just nothing, nothing really about Jesus. It's all about the injustice and wrong in the world and how it's being Christian to sort that out, but how are you going to sort it out without Jesus? On the other hand, I find that some non-Christians get it so much better, and there's a man called Rod Little who is a very, very interesting character. He's certainly not a Christian, uh, used to be the editor of the Today program on Radio 4, regular writer in The Spectator. Um, He's a very interesting unbeliever. He has a past that many people could identify with. He was divorced in a very bitter divorce. And unusually, he says, I was wrong. I did my children a great deal of harm. And he, he just is such an interesting writer. Well, the spectator, he, he put a poem in. It's maybe not the greatest poetry, but the sentiment, I think, describes how many people feel about Christmas. And this passage that we look at is going to 
I, I mean, I wish he was here. In fact, I'm, I'm going to send it to him. Um, I do admire him in many ways for his writing. He uses some words in this poem I've ne never heard before. I don't know what they mean, but you get the sense as you go along. Um, this is what he says. I'm not going to read the whole poem, but the latter part of it. He's talking about how his mother, he's working class background from England, and he's talking about how his mother uh, used to take an account of the Christmas presents and how Auntie Bertha got this and so on, and then she's not getting it next year, uh, and so on. This reckoning became for me the point of Christmas tide, a view which has not altered in the years since my mum died, a special time of nastiness, vindictiveness and greed, and of pigging out on turkey until your insides bleed. The punch-ups outside Argos in the sails which never end, those saccharine injunctions from John Lewis that we must spend on vacuous appertences, a bright green reindeer candle, and the Channel 4 Christmas address by some deranged jihadi. He's um, not subtle. <laughs> the drivel on the telly, fake bonhomme, fake cheer, fake love, fake compassion. And those two words you scarcely hear, absent from our Winterville, lest someone takes offense, Jesus Christ. Oh, him, yes, rings a bell in some half-forgotten sense. And yet, as I grow older, I can now discern a reason for this strange, misshapen jamboree we call the festive season. For month by month and without fail, we give it our best shot, then Christmas time reveals to us everything we're not. Everything we could be, should be, but always fall short in our frailties and our failures. That's the lesson yearly taught. And as the snowman slowly decquiesces on the lawn, the cattle still are lowing, the snail is on the thorn. We are not yet forsaken. Somehow from up above, he, capital he, watches, amused, appalled, distraught, who knows? Yet still we have his love. That's a non-Christian writing. And honestly, I, I was very moved by that because I just thought, I, I, I want to tell you. I mean, if I had his phone number, I would have, you know, I just thought, I want to tell you. You're... You see it, and this is why Christ came. So we're going to go to uh, Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 27. Now up to this point, Paul has explained about humanity, uh, he's explained about the Gentiles and the Jews, about the religious and the non-religious, that all need, are sinful, and all need the righteousness of God, and he's told us that this, in the marvelous passage, the paragraph before these verses, that this righteousness from God has now been made known through Jesus Christ, whom God presented as a sacrifice of atonement. And if you're here visiting and you're wondering what all that means, then go online and you can get the previous two sermons which explain that. But then he comes to this. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, there are great questions that are answered or questions here that, that come out of this that help us as we 
think about where we are. And the first is simply this. Verses 27 and 28, where then is boasting? Now, before I answer that, I want to uh, ask a very simple question. Why do I need to be right with God? I realize that the past couple of weeks I've talked about being right with God and taken it as an assumption that people will say, well, that's what I need. But actually, a lot of people will say, well, no, I don't need that. I'm basically okay. Well, I read this from John, uh, from, sorry, not John Stott, from C.S. Lewis, which was, I thought, brilliant. And he says this, a recovery, maybe go on to the next slide, please, yeah, you'll see at the bottom there. A recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. Until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, though we are part of the world he came to save, we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. We lack the first condition for understanding what he's talking about. And that is why so much of religious Christmas stuff is so saccharine and sickly, because nobody's got the nerve to say to people, Christ came because you're bad. They're all going to say, oh, well, Christ came and built because you're good and everything's good and, and isn't it sweet and lovely and it's all peace and harmony and, it, you know, I, I wish it could be Christmas every day, which nobody really wishes. And they, they, they don't get it. They don't understand. And that's why Lewis's description is just absolutely perfect. We're part of the world that Christ came to save, but... We're not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed if we do not realize that we need him. That when Christ calls us, he's calling people who are sinful, people who are sick, not people who are healthy and whole. And so Paul, in explaining all of this, has said, okay, well, how can I be right with God? He explains how we can be right with God, and he says, where's boasting? And his answer is, we're justified by faith apart from works. Now, the, the, the question of boasting is really important because both the Gentile world and the Jewish world was full of boasting. Earlier on in chapter 1 and verse 30, he says, they are slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They are arrogant and boastful. I think it's the hubris, isn't it? I mean, there are not many people like Muhammad Ali or Donald Trump. You, you, do I think I'm the greatest? I know I'm the greatest. Well, not many of us would be like that. But nonetheless, in the world and the culture in which we live, there is this strong emphasis on boasting. And it's something that's really unpleasant. Now, maybe not in that way, but I can tell you a really common one that I think most people would say. When asked about where they're at, and you know, if they were asked that classic question, if you were to stand before God in the day of judgment, what would you say? People say, well, look, I always do the best I can. I try to live a decent life. I pay what I'm due. What more can God expect of me? Well, actually, a whole lot more. The best you can is not enough. But the religious boast, and sometimes the religious boasting is, is, is worst of all. The Jews had a tendency to boast about their relationship with God, to rely on their works as the basis for that relationship. If you do the right things, then you will be saved 
And if you do the right things, you are prone to pride and boasting. So for example, a simple thing. Um, walk down the street just now, you come across somebody who's absolutely bluters, as we say, just drunk. And you might want to look and say, I have never been drunk in my life, and this person is just horrible. But if you've been in the gutter, you're not going to say that. We might think um, somebody's shooting out with heroin, that's terrible. But if you've done it, you understand why. And there are many, many things that uh, we maybe boast about that's entirely wrong. Paul gives himself as an example. In Jewish culture, there was an elite who were regarded as the law keepers. They were superior to the ordinary people, like the Pharisee in the temple who compared himself with the tax collector. And Paul in Philippians 3 says this, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, and listen to this carefully, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though, he says, I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for the righteousness based on the law, faultless. But, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus for Lord, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. And he uses a word that is so strong that if I used it in this church, you'd probably be offended. He says, they're dumb, they're muck. And all these things that, that he as a Pharisee regarded as holy and pure, he says, they're there, I regard them as dumb. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so he says there is a principle here of faith. Whether it's boasting, it's, no, it's excluded, you can't boast. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No. But on that of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. This was, of course, Martin Luther's great text. It is, a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law or the works of the law. And he's saying we turn away from our religious achievements and have our faith in the person and work and words of Christ. Calvin, and I can't go a sermon without quoting him, says this, were righteousness to be had by works of the law, our glorying would not be excluded. But as it is by faith alone, there is nothing that we can claim for ourselves. For faith receives all from God and brings nothing except a humble confession of want. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, I want, you, I want to repeat that, that last phrase to tell you why you can become a Christian even now. Faith receives all from God and brings nothing except a humble confession of want. Lord, I've got nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I've got nothing. And that is the condition of coming to Jesus in a way that we recognize we have nothing. I've heard somebody actually pray, Lord, um, I want to be on your side. 
and you're going to be pretty thankful that you've got me. Um, that's a paraphrase, but that's what he was saying. I was just so breathtaking. And he thought he was becoming, no, he wasn't becoming a Christian. He thought he and Jesus were going to, you know, be pals and negotiate together. That's not how it is. There cannot be boasting. John Stott, there is something fundamentally anomalous about Christians who boast in themselves as there is something especially authentic, appropriate, and attractive about their boasting in Christ. All boasting is excluded except boasting in Christ. Praising, not boasting, is the characteristic activity of justified believers and will be throughout eternity. I have a big mouth, and some of you have big mouths, and others of you don't have big mouths, you just have big thoughts. And when we talk, those of us who have big mouths, amazingly, the subject of our conversation is often ourselves. We boast about what we are and what we do. That is immensely unattractive in a Christian, and it is incredibly unattractive when it comes to our Christian faith. If we boast that we are not like other people, if we boast that, that we think we're better at this or uh, got a greater sense of this, even if we don't do it just individually but collectively, we haven't grasped and understood the gospel. There isn't a single person in this city that you can look down on. There isn't a single person, not one. And when you do, you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, hold up the mirror of your word and help me see how you see me. If, if you pray the Lord's prayer every day, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We can't boast. Now, there are ways we've got to try and work out how all that is. I mean, is that, does that say we never talk about ourselves? Do we never take pride in something that we do? Do we never take pride in our family? Of course we do. But what it's saying here, particularly in terms of our faith, that none of us can boast, I thank the Lord that I'm a Christian and other people aren't, and it's because I'm a Christian, and the emphasis being on the I. I did it. I used to hate those testimony meetings where people would talk for ages about their past life, and, and which was usually pretty horrible, and then they would say, and then I became a Christian. And then the message would basically be, and then you can become like me. And I was always look at them, I don't want to be like you. You were horrible before, now you're horrible as a Christian. I, I, I don't want to be like you. There's something much more attractive about somebody who says, you know this, I'd rather not talk about my past because I'm ashamed of it. But I want to glory in Jesus that he's delivered me from it. Yeah, I'll talk to you if it helps you. But I don't want to. It's, 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 it's more than embarrassing to me. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. I will glory in Jesus Christ. What a great Savior we have. And it's because we've been saved by faith and not by our own works that we've got nothing to boast about. Let's go on to um, verses 29 to 30. Oh, I should, of course, have quoted the verse from the great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, I Pour Contempt on All My Pride. So verse 29 to 30, this says this. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and, the, sorry, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. That's a second great question. Is there more than one God? Is God the God only of the Jews? And the answer here is, is fascinating because what Paul does is he says God is one. There is one God and he justifies both Jews and Gentiles through faith. 
Now, here's another paradox, strange thing in our culture. You know what we've done? We've developed this rather bizarre view that in order to be nice and fair, we have to accept there are many gods. But Paul holds strictly to monotheism, to what's called the Shema from Deuteronomy 4, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you come in and you say, I've come into the free church, you're talking about your God. You are kidding me. The God of the free church. Do you realize how small we are and how small that would make God? Okay, you're talking about the Scottish Protestant God. Same thing. Okay, you're talking about the God of evangelicals throughout the world. Sorry, same thing. What we are talking about is the God of the whole world. Now, we're not saying, because that would go against what he says, that all religions all lead to the same God. In fact, I would pretty well argue that religions generally lead away from God. That one God creating millions of God. Sometimes people will say this to me. They'll say, okay, if I'm not an atheist, which God do I choose? As though they think this is some brilliant point. There are 20,000 gods. Which one is right? Or actually, if you're Hindu, there's over 300 million. So which one do you choose? Well, you don't. You don't get to choose because there is only one God. Not my God, not the God of the free church, not the God of any particular culture, but the God of the universe who is far greater than we can possibly conceive or imagine. All people, Paul is saying, must be able to come to him because Christianity is not a tribal or a cultural religion. Even the dividing wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, Paul goes on to argue, that's been torn down. What he's saying here is not there are lots of gods and lots of ways to God. He's saying there's one God and the way to him is through Jesus Christ and that's true for everybody. We're given access, we're all given access to the one God by faith. The circumcised and the uncircumcised, both are sinners, both are under judgment. And both need to be saved by Jesus. Now, the practical implications of that are phenomenal. In this context and in this culture in Rome, it's probable that Jews and Gentiles were worshipping Christ in separate churches. And Paul's saying, that's not on. That's not on. Romans 15, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind, one voice, we glorify the one God. We had the Deca service uh, last Sunday e evening. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult when you do a, a joint service with different churches. I mean, should we just have all the churches in Dundee get together? The answer is no, because we'd end up with something so bland, it would make you feel ill. Um, it, it, what should happen is churches which believe in the God of the Bible and who accept that the Bible is his word, we should be working together. There isn't a God of Central Baptist and a God of Grace Church and a God of the Free Church as though we've created him according to our particular tastes. And yet somehow, sometimes we act as though that was the case. All who believe in Jesus belong to the same family and eat at the same table. There's not more than one God. But that leads on to the third question, verse 31. Is there more than one way to God? Do we abolish the law through faith, he asks. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? And he says, no, 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 we uphold the law. 
Now, we need to understand why he's saying this. He's concerned that the people think he's nullifying the covenant that God had with Israel. But Paul's kind of saying, ah, forget all that stuff. And he's not. This law that was so precious to the people of Israel, Paul says, he's going to, later, later on in Romans, he's going to say, what's special about the Jews? God gave them his law. He's, this law is precious. He's not nullifying it. He's saying, in fact, what we teach upholds that law. Now, how does that happen? He's saying the law is good. The law leads us to Christ because it shows us our sin. The intention of the law is to get us to love God and to love our neighbors, but the law in and of itself can't do that. That's why today you will walk into numerous churches and you will hear numerous Christmas sermons and they will all inevitably say, if you go and do this, then you'll be like Jesus or be doing what Jesus wants. And if people have got any sense at all, they will walk out of that building and realize they can't come remotely near to Jesus. It's not gospel. People think it's gospel. That's not gospel. When we hear God's law, what God's word says, and God's standards, that should convict us of our need for Christ, what we saw with C.S. Lewis saying, that's what we need. We need to, to grasp that. So we do teach and preach God's law. But Romans 8 verse 4, he'll go on again to say this. He's setting everything up for what comes later on in the letter in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. How? How can this righteous who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit? Faith in Christ means the demands of the law are perfectly kept and are perfectly fulfilled. So I'm going to say something to you that's quite extraordinary. As a Christian, I stand before you and I tell you this. I have fully kept the law of God. And how? Well, I haven't, but Jesus has, and I am in Christ. And what God does, he takes David Robertson and says, forgotten, because, forgiven, actually, and even more than that, just renewed. He says, I'm looking on you as I look on my son, having kept the whole law. Now, you're here as a Christian, and you're struggling with enormous guilt about many different things, your bad temper, things you've done in the past, your, your hypocrisy, and so many things that you, you think that if the rest of us knew, we would shirk away from you. Maybe we would. And you think, how, how can God accept me? Because he looks upon you as having kept his law completely because of what Jesus did. The, the righteous requirements of the law are met by those who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's an even more extraordinary thing. If you were a, a non-Christian coming here and you're saying, right, I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to follow God and I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to do good things and I'm going to help people at Christmas and I'm everything. You will find that it doesn't work and that all you do is pile more guilt upon yourself. So Paul is saying, listen, there are not many ways to God. All the different religions, every single religion. One of the, the ways I explain, and I, I do this in the, the secondary schools with um, children 11, 12 years old, and they get it, so you should be able to get it. It's very simple. What is the difference? If you want to say the, the, you know, the thousands of gods and the thousands of religions, what is the difference between what you are teaching and all the different religions. Why is your one the best? Again, thinking about choosing. And the answer is this. Every single religion in the world 
is humanity trying to reach God, seeking for God in some way or other. Biblical Christianity, and I use that phrase deliberately because there are lots of forms of Christianity which have just been turned into mere religion. But mere Christianity, if you like, is different because God reaches down to us. And we need to keep remembering that. So let me recap all of this. Paul says, the gospel humbles sinners and excludes boasting. Those, uh, a proud and arrogant Christian is a contradiction in terms. If you are a believer, you, you know you can't boast in yourself and in your religion. Biblical, the gospel unites believers and excludes discrimination. I don't have any reason whatsoever to say to anyone because of your background, because of your skin color, because of your language, because of your social class, because of your history, I, I, I don't want anything to do with you. As a Christian, discrimination is absolutely excluded. Now again, our society talks about that but doesn't really practice it. The gospel upholds the law. The gospel, this is where, again, so many Christians I think get this wrong. They say, oh, I live by grace. I don't need the law. Don't you understand? The gospel upholds the law. This is God's standards. It's God's purity, God's holiness. It upholds the law and it excludes both legalism, relying on the law, and what we call antinomianism, which is going against the law. The gospel is just this marvelous thing that, that brings us to God in the purity and joy and beauty of the Lord. And so I ask those of us who are Christians, what are we doing? You should take the opportunity to bring your friends to hear the, this good news. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I, you, know, you know what it's like, you're full of zeal and everything's just great. You know, and I, I wanted to take my friends to anything. I looked for anything. I mean, we, we traveled, we were up in the Highlands, we were teenagers, we traveled anywhere. I remember one time we traveled 30 miles, 26 of us got in one car. I don't know how, but we did. It was illegal, obviously, then, even then, but we managed because we were so desperate to go and hear Bible teaching. And we were so keen, we wanted to take our friends everywhere. And I remember one time, it was Christmas Eve, I thought, this is great, we'll go to this particular church. Uh, and I thought, we, we took our friends, and it was a Christmas Eve service, and it was dreadful, and I felt awful because they didn't hear the gospel. They, they heard tinsel and donkeys and, and Chris, Christmas, yuck. And they didn't hear virtually anything about Jesus. And it taught me a big lesson. But I'll tell you this. If you know the gospel is going to be proclaimed and you know at Christmas people are more likely to come to church, you make sure you invite your friends to come to a church. I don't care if it's this one. But to go to a church where they're going to hear the gospel, because that may be the only time they hear the good news. That's why those Christmas cards are such a good thing. Please do take some. Just giving someone a Christmas card, there's very few people who'll be offended by it, and if they are offended by it, too bad. You need new friends. No, <laughs> just love them in other ways. But 
Very few people will be offended by getting a Christmas card, and a Christmas card which has an invitation on it. And coming to church at Christmas, even today, that's kind of socially acceptable with a lot of people. So use them. But most of all, just, just yourself grasp and understand how great the gospel is, because when you do, you want to tell people. That's when I, was, when I first became a very young Christian. I was so enthusiastic to do it. Um, you'll forgive me saying this. Uh, not long after I became a Christian, uh, I met a man, uh, well, same age basically as me, and uh, over many, many, uh, over the past few decades we've been friends, he's a car dealer called Murdo Murchison, and Murdo is, um, as far as we know, he's dying, and we went down to see him yesterday. What always struck me about Murdo, apart from his brilliant car salesmanship and the good he did for the reputation of second-hand car salesman, what always struck me about him was I never, ever went to Murdo to buy a car or to talk about a problem or to get a service without him saying to me, come on in the office and let's talk about Jesus. And he, he would always introduce me to the mechanics and other people and he would, about how can, we, how can we start a church in Sterling? How can we do this? How can we do that? And it's just that enthusiasm for the good news. Why did it come? Because he's a particularly great guy. Well, he is, but no. It came because he knew the gospel. And you preach it to yourself and you realize this is just great. This is just so good. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry to embarrass Mr. Henderson, uh, but his latest video offering is absolutely superb. I love it. I love both of them. And I, I just want to show people and I want to show it to Rod Little because I want Rod Little to say, look, there's something beautiful here. There's something really good. And it all points to Jesus. And that's where I finish for those maybe who are not yet Christians. I want to return to Rod Little. Yet, he says, still we have his love. What does that mean? The greed and the fights and the frailties and the failures, the tinsel and the triviality, the festivity and all the falseness of it. Little senses that and he feels it and he sees it and he's frustrated by it and he sees that somehow as he gets older, the one, the two words you can't say, Jesus Christ, somehow he's the answer, and he doesn't know yet how he is the answer. And he is the answer because Jesus is God's means of forgiveness and renewal. Some of you will remember the old Christmas comedy song, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. And then you can have the Christmas song, you know, all I want for Christmas is you. Lots and lots of different things that people will say what they want for Christmas. For me, I look at this and I, and I know that the greatest gift, not, um, what was it, Live Aid, the greatest gift they'll get this year is life. Well, that's about as close to it as we can get because the greatest gift you will get is new life through Jesus Christ. And that's what this gospel is. There's no boasting. We're justified by faith apart from works. We uphold the standard and the purity of God, and yet we can come to know this living God. That's why Jesus came. He came, as I mentioned in the past couple of weeks, both times, he came not just simply to forgive, to say you can go, but he came to justify, to say you can come. And he invites you, and that's just simply what I ask you. Why? Won't you come 
to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your beauty. And thank you for the word that you have given to us through your spirit, every word of which is true and every word of which glorifies you. Lord, we cannot boast in our understanding, in our wisdom. We cannot boast in our wealth and in our strength. We cannot boast in our religion or in our good works. We cannot boast in our business or in our families. Ultimately, these are gifts that you grant to us. The good that we have, we have from you, and the evil that we do comes from within. We cannot boast at all except in Jesus Christ. And we bless you that, Lord Jesus, you are the beautiful one. You are the one who came. You are the one who gives life. You are the one who gives light. Enable us this Christmas not to be the ones who stress out at absolutely everything, but instead let us have our minds firmly fixed on you. And may we know your presence for every moment that we have. For we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing uh, the song, By Faith, which basically sums up what the message is. By faith we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design, in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. Let's stand and let's sing this to God's praise. And then please remain standing for the